then, you know, sometimes I think too, Chris, that we're so removed because we're so rural. That's true. And, you know, it's, it's, I have a very altruistic practice um, just because we're it <laughs> and the next provider is an hour away. And, and I, but I, uh, the caveat with that is that you're never really sick when you go to the eye doctor. Um, you know, they, they'll drive an hour to go to Imart or Walmart or wherever because they're going to go to Lowe's mm. and they're going to go to Target. And oh, by the way, we're getting our eyes checked that same day. You know, it's, it's not, you're not six, 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 so you have to go to the nearest provider, right? Right. So, you know, people say, well, then, you know, you have no competition. Well, we do because we drive an hour to go out for dinner. We think <laughs> nothing of that hour drive, right? It, it's all relative. So I have competition, but then when they do have something like a penetrating foreign body or, you know, we're in a farming community. So when crap happens, you know, then it walks in the door, regardless if there are routine patients or not on a regular basis. So it, there's always something. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with Dr. Dory Carlson. She is uh, kind of the first person I've ever had on the podcast. And um, and so it was a lot of fun to catch up with her over the last year and a half. Uh, I've been able to see her at multiple meetings, but but to actually have a longer conversation with her. When we talk about leadership and what makes a good leader, what types of tools we can use to become better leaders. And, um, and then also, uh, Dory helps other docs kind of guide through a leadership program. And so we talked a, bit, a little bit about that. I think it was a great conversation. Had a lot of fun. I always learn something when I talk to Dory, and she's inspired me to do some other things in my practice. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I have to admit that with eight kids, it's a real challenge for my wife and I to minimize our environmental footprint. You should see the corner of our driveway every Tuesday morning when recycling and trash is picked up. One of the things I can control is who I partner with. Sustainability is something that matters to us and to our patients, and Cooper Vision is committed to it. From executives to plant employees at Cooper Vision, their commitment to sustainable practices is clear. Check out the show links to see how others are incorporating their commitment to sustainability in their practice. You know, and it's funny too, because you, you, when I talk to my colleagues that are in big cities, you know, um, I have sent people home on bed rest with retinal detachments. It's like, okay, yeah. it's going to be a seven hour drive. Um, you know, there's at one time I had a guy that I had to get there, but we were flooding and I had to actually look and see which bridge was open oh, so that wow. he could get into Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, it changes your level. Like I said, your comfort level, cause that you have to see the retinal detachment, you know, within two hours. No, no, no. you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know why we were trained that way because I don't know. I mean, the last couple of detachments I've seen in my practice, uh, and you know, we don't see a ton of them, fortunately, mm-hmm. but, um, but you know, the, the surgeon's always like, yeah, have them come in tomorrow morning. Don't make yep. to have them not eat. You know, they, I don't even care if the macula is on or off. They, it's just like, yeah, maybe tomorrow morning or if it's, if it's a Saturday morning. Come in yep. on, on Monday. Monday. We'll, we'll take care of them, you know? Yep. And um, so I don't know why we got that mentality beat into our brains when we were in school. Like, that's the only thing that we have to worry about, you know? I think sometimes our instructors don't have a lot of real-world experience. And, you know, some do. 
but I think by and large they're academic more than they are. So they read the textbook, and so and then they're fearful, you know, because oh my goodness, you could get you know, sued because you didn't send them, right? Right, right? So I think they teach out of fear more than yeah. they teach out of practicality. Yeah. You know, I, I I think there's probably something to that. I think there's probably some. I think there's probably a lot to that. You know, Doria, I um, what has been a lot of fun for me is, well, I think first of all, you know that you're you're like the first podcast that that I ever released, and it wasn't meant to be a podcast. It was essentially your you know a presentation lecture, that you provided, yeah. yeah. And um, and so you are you know, our conversation that you and I had back from Kearney, Nebraska, after you came and provided that presentation, um, really spawned me to think, look, and I think I even asked you, could we have this conversation, uh, on the podcast, honestly? Um, and, and I don't remember what we were talking, I do remember, but, but I'm not going to bring those things up in per- in particular, but the, um, but the, but the question was, is like, I wonder if we could have a, uh, it started me thinking about, okay, well, I should be doing a podcast. I should be talking to people and picking their brains about things. And then, it, it, so it's fun to get to know you. It's been fun to get to know you better over the last few years. I know I've known you for a long time, but, um, and it's also fun to see kind of the things you're doing. And one of the things that reinforces this, and I'll, I'll let the listeners know is, um, you know, one of the docs out in Western Nebraska, rural Western Nebraska, she and her husband own four practices out there and they, and they do the thing, you know, they travel to different practices. They've got four kids. They're, you know, out there at Tori Gengenbach. So I'll just, I'll just mention her name. And when she found out you were coming, I, I don't think these are the right words, but she said, oh my goodness, Dory Carlson is my spirit animal or something like that. And, I, and she was just like, that was super cool for me to see because, you know, I, I, I've, I've been influenced by you over the years, but it was really cool for me to see um, somebody else w- with the same perspective as I have. And so, um, so you've done a lot of stuff over the years. And what I wanted to have you talk about today was specifically leadership. And kind of the things that you're doing with leadership, your master's degree within leadership. And then, you know, obviously you've got, you know, your long history within the AOA, which takes a whole bunch of time and energy. And, and then you decided that, you know, if, if that wasn't enough leadership, how do I take it to the next level? So let's start talking about that. Sure. I guess, I guess if I was going to ask a question in all of that, you know, where, give me some perspective of your time, of your leadership, um, path within the AOA and then we can kind of springboard to the next step. Well, you know, I think it all starts with saying yes. Um, you know, so it's the little things, right? And you don't jump into the big stuff right off the bat. It's baby steps, right? So somebody asks you to help with something or, and you say yes, or you you know, get asked to do something else and you say yes. And, you know, it's maybe we should learn how to say that little word no sometimes. But sometimes it's the the scary things that you say yes to that provide the most growth. Um, So, you know, it was, it started at the state level. We we started our own practice. We opened cold. We needed help. We got to know our, our colleagues in our state. We networked with them. And, you know, they said, well, hey, we need some help with third party stuff because I was doing, you know, coding billing and trying to learn how to bill in our office. And, and so I said, yes. And so one thing kind of leads to another. You serve on some committees and then, you know, we're volunteer boards, right? So suddenly you find yourself in a position where you're on the state association board. 
And ironically, both Mark and I served on the state association board at the same time. And we had a five-week-old baby when I was president-elect. Mm. So um, I, I brought Seth to one of our board meetings when he was five weeks old. And I, I joke now that I, I actually leaned over and said to him, well, welcome to your life. And because Mark and I were both on this board and we have a baby, so we're going to bring him to the board meeting. And little did I know how profound that was going to be and, and um, you know, what it would mean in the future. Yeah. But so then, you know, you, you represent your state at the national level. And, and so it's just those little baby steps that just kind of keep going. And, you know, people talk about the fact that they have no time to do that or, you know, it, I, I guess where my inspiration came from was I was tired of somebody telling me that I couldn't do something because I was an optometrist. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that was the early days, right? We couldn't, we couldn't prescribe to, when I moved to North Dakota, I was trained in the VA where I had, you know, carte blanche privileges, basically. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to North Dakota and they had this crazy law that we had, to, we were legally bound to do the workup for glaucoma and diagnose it, but then they wouldn't let us write the drops for it, the script for it. We could write for antibiotics, you know, everything else, but we couldn't write for glaucoma vents. And, you know, that just ticked me off. And so it started because of that, that this needed to change, right? I'm, I'm tired of working up a glaucoma patient, you know, handing it over on a silver platter to an ophthalmologist and giving the blessing and him writing the script for Timolol at that time, you know? Right. So then you get involved in the legislature and you start testifying and you start doing different things because it just needs to change. And, you know, I guess I've always been the person who's believed that we should leave something better than the way we found it. So, you know, you can complain all you want, but then be part of the fix, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm worried, Dory, I'm worried that, you know, I, I absolutely think that, you know, your generation of practitioner in our, in our profession um, has absolutely left our profession and our patients in a better place than when you found them. Um, I'm, I hope that we can do the same thing. You know, my generation is kind of quickly you know, I think the next generation of people are going to have to come up behind me as well. But I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can do that. Um, what are your thoughts about, what are your thoughts about the, the future and what we have to do from a leadership standpoint, both in your generation, in my generation, and then the generation behind me to, to continue to leave, leave everything in, in better hands or so, in better positions? I think our biggest problem is complacency. You know, if we're fat and happy, we're not going to change. It's like this whole COVID thing, right? And, and until we're absolutely forced to change, we don't change. We don't learn how to do online meetings. We don't do, you know, everybody's a Zoom expert now, right? Mm -hmm. um, everybody, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield has 900 employees in Fargo, North Dakota, and all of them are working from home. You know, so until you're forced to change, you don't change. And that's true, I think, for anything. So profession-wise, we had a, a, something that we needed to change, right? So there will come a day because there aren't enough ophthalmologists being produced. Um, that, that, that line is flat. They're not producing anymore because mm -hmm. of how they're funded. So, but there's going to be a need, right? So at some point in time, because of either managed care and refractive care, you know, biting off more and more of our profits. So on the back end, we may have problems with that. And on the front end, there may be a real legitimate need that maybe we're doing the injection for intravitreal injections. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we're the ones that start doing more things because there aren't enough ophthalmologists. 
Um, now, heck, they want to do nurse practitioners. We know far more about the eye than they do. So I think when there becomes a um, flood of need and people realize that they have to change their way, you either die or you progress. Yeah. So for future, you know, I think it's going to come. And, and maybe some of this stuff with COVID, I, I keep looking at maybe some of the things that might be the positive outcomes out of all of this. And, and maybe, you know, spurring on some of our colleagues to think bigger, to future-proof their practice, so to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that there's going to be people that step up to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, there, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that... Um, to future proof your practice. I, you know, I would have never, I mean, just, I would have never delved into telehealth, uh, if it weren't for COVID, I guarantee, I don't know how many people, I I think Mike, Mike Rothschild and I was, we're doing a webinar a couple of weeks ago. And and he said that, uh, there, there was like 60 or 70% of providers that had responded, had done some form of telehealth, uh, during COVID. And so, um, but, but I guarantee that of that 60 to 70% of those respondents before COVID, oh, I, I bet there was probably 1% or less that had done any of that stuff, had done any of the research on when we could use it appropriately. And, you know, it just wasn't something that we, we had. And now, you know, I keep saying this, but I think it's probably, I, I, do, I do one to two a day now, even, even that my practice is seeing patients that are you know, coming through and I'm, I'm constantly thinking, can I see this patient back on telehealth, right? Can I check their allergy, you know, for example, can I follow up with their allergies or can I follow up with their dry eye or can I follow up with their lid lesion or, you know, whatever, can I, can I do that via telehealth? Um, and as things expand, you know, as technologies expand, there's going to be probably be more of those patients that I can, that I can see virtually um, as long as they want it. And I don't think it's going anywhere. I, I think once COVID's done, I think uh, insurance companies are still going to be paying for it. And if they decide not to, I think the key is going to be do the professions roll over and say, well, we're just not going to do it anymore. Or do they say, okay, well, your insurance company isn't covering this. You're going to have to pay for it. And if the patient has to pay for it and the insurance company is denying it, that's not going to last for very long. Those patients are going to want that. Yeah. 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 The, um, Okay, so then, as far as leadership is concerned, you know, I think that's I think you encapsulated the idea of saying yes, of necessity, and seeing that things need to be changed. I mean, it's it's exactly what I've experienced for me. That's driven me. So it's pretty cool to hear you, you know, kind of inspired by the same things that have inspired me to to try to um, to say yes to different things in the profession and try to move the profession forward um, as much as possible. But, but we can't always do that. So in your mind, with all of your skills and training in leadership, first of all, take me through how you decided to go into, um, you know, getting a master's degree in leadership. And then what really do you see makes good leaders? Okay. Um, well, first, my journey. So I got off of the AOA board and I was done. And, you know, I, I'm the person that says, what next? 
All right, so am I ready to just be done and kind of fade away into the sunset and not do anything involved with my profession or personal development or whatever it might be? And no, you know, you ask yourself, are you ready to just do that? No, I'm not ready to garden full time or just go back and see patients full time. I still see patients, but you know, I'm not going back and seeing patients five days a week. Um, and so then it was like, well, what do, I, what do I do with the things that I've learned? So I'm really blessed that I have people that I've known over the years that have given me opportunities. And so for a while I was asked to do some lectures and, you know, so I, I put together some glaucoma lectures and I, you know, did some things in, and, you know, kudos to all of you that do lectures like that because it is a ton of work to put those together. Um, but, you know, it was like I, I, I stopped and I asked myself, am I jazzed about doing this? You know, I could mm. do it, right? I can do it, but is it something that's getting me just really passionate? Am I passionate about it? And so I kept asking myself that as I had opportunities for speaking and doing different things, it was like, so am I excited to do this? And so I kept asking myself, well, what is it? No, no. Then I would find myself like I'd say yes to it and I would do it, but I didn't feel like it did my best because I wasn't really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. So I kept paying attention to the things that I got really excited about. Um, and, and it just kind of kept coming back to leadership things, motivational speaking, um, just trying to get people to move and grow themselves. And so I actually went to a John Maxwell event. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of John Maxwell, have been for years, read tons of his books, but they actually do training. And the reason why I went to the training in the first place was to become a better speaker. So about motivational speaking and what can mm -hmm. I do to get my skills better to do that. And so that's why I went to the training in the first place. And, but it's about coaching and it's about um, how to connect with people and how to network with people. And, and there are people that that's all they do is coach people how to be better leaders. That's their full-time job. And that's not really where I wanted to go, but it certainly was something that really intrigued me. And, you know, I think as all of us, we all have the ability to be leaders. Okay, we're all leaders. We it, because leadership is influence. You influence a child. A teacher influences a student. You know, you influence your spouse. You influence all kinds of people. You influence your patients. But it's about developing those skills of influence that create your leadership skills. So we all have the ability to do it. It's just if you want to develop it or not. So. I went to this Maxwell event. I started doing more speaking. I started writing blogs, um, doing a lot of stuff with leadership, um, writing mostly, mm -hmm. and, and some speaking. And then most of my audience was optometrists. And I thought, well, I have the same degree as they do. I'm just standing up here, and the only thing that really makes me different is that I happen to have been a past AOA president. Mm -hmm. You know, so baptism by fire. Yeah. whether I knew what I was doing or not, right? Um, so I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to speak to my colleagues and if I'm going to try to promote people to become better leaders, then maybe I should learn how to be even a better leader myself. So it was about, you know, doing something for myself and, and adding a credential to some of the things that I'm doing that makes me come at it from a different angle. So I signed up for a master's program. Um, two years um, master's program. I have, I'm in my last class right now. And then by the end of July, I my independent research capstone is due. So my summer project is writing a big capstone paper about, um, 
with an independent research study. And then I will graduate with my master's of arts in leadership. Can you tell, can you tell, because uh, I've seen, you know, I've, I've responded to a number of, of surveys that you've put out for your capstone. Um, and uh, can you kind of tell me about your research project? Can you, re- can sure. you discuss that? Um, so what I'm doing is, and I haven't really looked hard at the data yet because I've been gathering the data still, but I used vision source administrators. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and my idea was how do people want to learn how to become better leaders? So do they want to learn it in something in person? Do they want to learn it from mm-hmm. outside experts? Do they want to learn it from somebody that's a colleague, you know, that has their same degree, so to say? Do they want to learn it online? Do they want to go to an event that is like, you know, um, really dynamic, like a Maxwell event? Um, you know, do they want to have it one day, two days? Do they want to spread it out? So it was kind of about, and then, you know, the premise is too, with behind that, not only how they want it, is there a difference as far as gender? Is there a difference as far as age group? Hmm. So if you're in a different age group, we're all different um, you know, Gen X, millennials, um, baby boomers, do that? Do those different groups have different desires or needs for how they want to learn? Um, and, you know, the other thing that we're trying to add to it is we had some emotional intelligence scores for leaders, and I'm running into a little bit of a roadblock with that, but what I wanted to do is cross-check emotional intelligence scores with maybe what people felt that they, how they wanted to learn how to be better leaders. So what's your, so that, that, that's unpacking a couple things for me. Um, as far as emotional intelligence goes, um, what, can you generalize, I hate to generalize, but um, can you generalize, like, my thought is always that women are better at an emotional intelligence. The data that I've seen kind of suggests that a little bit. Um, they can empathize with people better. Um, and, and so that's something that I try to work on really hard in myself is to try to, to think about empathy more. Um, cause I, I, I think naturally I'm okay at it, but I'm, I'm not nearly as good at it as other people, uh, that I know. So I, I don't know. Um, what, what are your thoughts about emotional intelligence? Is there any generalizations? Are there any ways that we can do better with it that you've, that you've seen in, in any of your research? Uh, and then, so and then I've got other questions beyond that. So, well, first of all, let's back up because some people don't know what emotional intelligence okay, is. Yeah. Okay. So you have a personality, right? You can't change your personality. Your personality is your personality. And if you try to change your personality, you're going to be miserable. Okay. But emotional intelligence is something that can be changed because it's about your self-awareness and about how you come across to other people and realizing how you come across to other people. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you can actually work on that and become more empathetic, more communicative, more less emotional. You know, like I know lots of women who tell me that they struggle with controlling their emotions when mm. they get into a, a time of stress, right? So it's about controlling how you react to things, but also realizing how you are perceived by others, that self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And you can change your emotional intelligence. I mean, so... The best way that I think if you want to delve into that is emotional intelligence 2.0 is a book and it gives you the, on the, it gives you, allows you to do the test twice. So you do the, the analysis once and then you kind of go through the book and figure out where you need to work on things and then you can do it after the fact. And so that's kind of what emotional intelligence is. 
generalizations. Um, that's a good question. You know, I haven't, I agree with you that there's sometimes more women have the empathy part of it, but then more women might have troubles with controlling their emotions mm. when they're in a stressful environment. Mm, interesting. So, I mean, I don't think there's one gender's better than the other because it's multifaceted. It's not just one aspect of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, as I think about it, you know, our, I guess what I'm asking, so to take that another level is, is there a certain type of thing that optometrists are naturally good at within their emotional intelligence? Like if you had, I don't know any about the thing about the different classifications, but are we inherently as a profession because of the, the type of profession we are that we attract certain types of people? Are we, are we better in some ways at emotional intelligence? Are we worse in some ways? Um, any, any general areas that you see people could work on that would improve those just as a broad spectrum? Yeah. Um, you know what, Chris, I'm going to just tell you that I haven't delved into it enough okay. to, to give you a great answer on that. Have me back on another podcast after <laughs> I finish my capstone. Perfect. So, um, cause I'm in the process of doing, I, I've done some research, but I'm still in the process of gathering the research for that part of it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, I would say, I guess, I guess to, to expand upon that, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. That's why I asked, but you know, one of the things I find myself doing and I, um, is, you know, once you get to, I think a point in your practice, and I don't know, for me, it was, it was probably at least five years in practice. Um, you know, I've always, uh, is to be able to go the next step and take a, you know, and I always try to take it from a standpoint of my patients and how am I coming off? How many, how am I coming across to my patients and am I communicating effectively? And when I deliver messages, how am I going to deliver that in a way that makes it stick for them? And sometimes I feel like I do a really good job of that. And then, and then I'll, we'll have a, an office meeting. Um, we do that every week and, um, and then we'll, we'll get into something in my, um, you know, part, somebody on my team would say, yeah, you know, patients ask all the time, you know, what did he talk about back there? It's like, oh, I thought I did such a good job reading their body language and asking for feedback. And did I explain this well? And, you know, all those kinds of things. And it's like, oh, geez, I got some, I got some work to do. Well, and it's not just you. I mean, so what happens is it depends upon how that person wanted the information delivered. Yeah. You know, so now you can go into personalities. So if you talk about disc analysis, you know, for instance, yep. You have some people that want the statistics and the data and they want that minutia because that's what they like to hear, you know, and then you have the other personality that just wants to hear that it's going to be okay. Mm, yeah. You know, and doesn't want the data, doesn't want the fact that you told them about what study did what and what we proved with this. And, you know, so that's the hard part too, is because it's not only you communicating, it, it's how that individual wanted to listen to you and, and, gather the data, the information from you. So it's called communication for a reason. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think I am getting better at trying to identify those patients. I remember, uh, I don't know if you ever were involved in any of this stuff, but I remember as a student, I can't remember his name, but um, Johnson and Johnson, when I was a student, they have, would have everybody down to their uh, vision care Institute. And mm -hmm. there was, there was a gentleman that, um, that he his job in a, an optometric practice was to disc analysis every patient that came through the door. And so he would be able to figure out how they wanted information delivered, how they wanted and, and customize. And I thought, man, that's crazy. Like, first of all, it's, 
that's crazy to actually invest that energy, which is great. Um, but we haven't done that as a practice. I'm just trying to, it would be great to be able to do that, you know, just throughout your speaking abilities and your communication abilities, just to kind of glean that information from the people, person that you're talking to. So have you ever done any disc analysis with your staff or anything like as a retreat or anything? We have, but it's been a while. And, 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 and to be honest with you, Dory, um, uh, I, I am automatic. So here's my bias. When I do a disc analysis on myself, I am very hard to put into one of those categories. I, I sort of have this, you know, this, uh, vi- you know, kind of middle, you know, even if I'm in one category, I'm barely into that category. So what that, so what I, I always wonder is like, I don't know, if the, does it, can I really trust this? So I, you I think don't, too much. what's that? <laughs> you think too much. Maybe. Maybe, but, but I guess the, 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 the point is, is that it, it, I don't want to pigeonhole people. I know people who oh, say yeah. you are in this category and that's all you can do, right? That's all you can do because you're in this category. And so I, I guess to, the, to resist that, I, I just say, well, maybe disc analysis makes some sense, but we just don't do them often. So that's my bias. I, I, and, and, I'm, and I probably should do them more with our staff. Well, it, so let, let's talk about that because maybe some of your listeners don't really know what that is, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So disc analysis. And there's, there's other personality tests out there too, but it's, it's a really common one. And, it's, and I first got introduced to it when I was on the AOA board. Um, we went to Elcon and had a um, board meeting at, in Fort Worth at their, at their um, campus. And part of what they did with us as a board was they took us through disc analysis. And that was my very first um, touch point with it. So, okay, that was kind of interesting. We did this and we just had this conversation and they had a facilitator who talked about kind of what, what it meant, you know, and it, it's not pigeonholing people, you know, mm-hmm. it's, we, we are all of the above, but we probably have some tendencies towards certain things. Okay. And again, you can kind of change your personality a little bit, but you really get uncomfortable if you change it too much. Okay. So I, I jokingly said, so what do you guys do? Like, do disc analysis on all of your employees and stick it outside their cubicles? And they're yes. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, really? So it was about how managers used that information because again, just like I was telling you, some people, you go to them to tell them something, they want the data, the statistics, studies, and you won't change their mind at all until you give them that information. And then there's other people that if you approach them, and you become their friend and you network and you develop some trust and rapport, then all of a sudden they'll believe everything that you are telling them. Then you can get to them and influence them. So it's, it's just how we like to be approached, right? So anyway, that was the first time that I ever got introduced to it. And I thought, wow, Alcon does that with all of their folks. Well, then I found out that J&J does the same thing. And, you know, that they have disc analysis that they use and their managers use it for when they need to talk to them about changing behavior or good things or bad things or reviews and how to approach people. Um, Because, you know, sometimes you can talk to people and all of a sudden you've got them on the defense right away, right? Yeah. We do this with our staff all the time. You know, and now all of a sudden they're on the defense and it's like, well, if you'd approached it a little differently, you would have had an open conversation maybe. So anyway, I... because of being on the AOA board, I ended up in for a variety of different meetings. I think I did, I've probably done a disc analysis seven or eight times. 
it turns out the same every time. But you know, you, you can't think about it. You just have to go with your automatic, like what's your first first thought? So, but it pretty much turns out the same. So that is a tool. It is not, you know, it's not the end all. It's not how you pigeonhole people, but it's a tool. And you know, when I talk to people about doing um, better leadership stuff, you better know yourself first because you can't lead somebody else if you don't know yourself. If you don't know your skills, your strengths, your weaknesses, you know, which we're probably all good about telling ourselves what our weaknesses are, right? But there's, there's things that we do that are really well. And if you capitalize on those things that you do well, find other people around you that can do the things that you don't do so well, you know, that, that becomes a way of which that you can use your own skill set to influence others. And if you don't realize how you come across other people, if you don't realize what you are really or really understand and embrace what you are, what your personality is, there's, it's going to be really difficult to lead other people. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, when you think about, uh, when I think about how I would deliver a message or to, to any of our team, you know, it, it, it is different. You know, it is, I, I've, many of them have been with us so long that I, you kind of understand just based on trial and error, you know, a lot more error when you don't do what we're doing. So I think you've, I think you've inspired me to, to do a disc analysis with our, with our team uh, so that I think, so then I, we could just have better communication and make sure that we're covering, as you said, making sure that there's somebody on the team that, that can cover for where we may not, we may not have coverage basically in terms of well, personality. And, and we've used it, we've used it for hiring purposes too. Yeah. Now it's part of our hiring process. It, it is not, it's not what we make a decision off of, but it's a tool mm-hmm. because have you ever inter- done interviews and thought, wow, this person really did, you know, came across as X, Y, and Z, and then they show up for work and they're not anywhere the person interviewed. You're like, what did you do? You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So at least if you, if you have narrowed it down, this is how we've used it. If we've narrowed it down to two, three people or whatever, you know, then we pay for them to do a disc analysis. Um, done online you get the results and then you kind of at least know what you're getting um rather than just whatever time you spent with them in an interview process yeah yeah well so okay then then you know you and i dory i think you've done a lot of work helping a lot of doctors um with their leadership skills and so part of why i wanted to have you on was just to sort of talk about you know what what you've done historically kind of your your groups that you've assembled and then, you know, what are your, some of your plans in terms of reaching out to other doctors uh, to kind of help them with a prescribed leadership group so that we have a, a place to go to improve some of these skills? Sure. So as part of, um, you know, I'm always trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. Yeah. So I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. <laughs> But what I've been doing lately and actually have for the last two or three years now is after I went to the John Maxwell events, there's resources that I have available to me through those that I can use then to bring out to other people. And so John Maxwell's written a ton of books. And so one of the things that we've done is I've done is um, create mastermind groups. And so it's basically a facilitated book club, if you will, like a study club where we go through one of the books and kind of have conversations with groups. And I have done mine um, all in a virtual format. I haven't done any in person. I know that there are folks that do things in person, but 
because I've mostly been marketing it towards optometrists, I've done it all virtually. So for example, um, you know, we'll take a book, say there's 15 chapters in the book and we'll assign two chapters a week. And then we meet for, um, a little over an hour, hour and 15 minutes per week for about eight weeks. And we go through the book and we just have a discussion about things. And, and it's not about me lecturing to somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's about me asking questions of people so that they share what their ideas, what their philosophies are, and they can kind of hear what other people are doing and how other people approach it. And so it's about me more or less kind of guiding, facilitating coaching and it's all about leadership topics. It's about personal growth. It's about, you know, um, all the different, like I said, it's a lot of the books that Maxwell has that I facilitate through those things. They've been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I usually start, um, I, I'm, I'm actually adding to my repertoire of the groups that I'm leading through, but I, I usually like to start with the one about personal growth. Because I really do believe, it, and I've said this before, even on this podcast, that if you don't know yourself and if you don't grow yourself, there's no way you can grow others. So yeah. it's about growing yourself and being comfortable with who you are as a leader and, and kind of looking aside yourself about how you approach things before you can go out and lead somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, how often do you start one of these groups and, and then, um, you know, what, I guess, so that I can make sure that before we, we wrap up today that I give an opportunity for people to write, reach out to you. How, when do you start a group? How do people reach out to you and, and, and find you so that they can, they can, uh, they can use your resources? Sure. And So um, usually I've, I've been trying to, well, I started out 2020 as being really intentional. My word for the year was going to be intentional. And it will, I shouldn't say going to be because it still is. Yeah. Um, so I, my intention was to do like a group about once every quarter. And so I started out the first quarter of the year really well. I, I led a group through a mastermind. I think I had, well, I had two different groups. I think I had about 18 people between the two groups. Mm -hmm. And so a couple nights a week I was doing that. And then COVID hit. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, can so 2020, can we do it? Can we have a do-over? Yeah. Um. So but it's been kind of organic because usually I'll have people that tell me that they're interested in, and I like to have groups of about 10 people. So when I get enough people that are interested, I'll start up another group and we kind of go through that. And, and so it's been more organic than um, planned. Like I don't say August 1st, I'm starting it up. Right. But, you know, at some point in time, I imagine myself doing that. I want to get through writing my capstone first and kind of get done with some of that. Um, but then that's my intention is to just start ramping that up and doing it a little bit more intentional. Yeah. Ideally, I'd like to do them once a quarter. Yeah. And so then if, if we're, if you're going to leave people with a couple thoughts or one thought, like, are, is there one thing or two things that if, if you're thinking, ah, you know, I probably should just be more intentional about my leadership skills, one or two things that, that you think people should know about? Um, that they could do right now that you think is a common thing that, that many of us could do to be, to kind of jumpstart this fire in us? Well, you know, we have the day of the internet, right? So it's super easy to find things on the internet about leadership. And there's all kinds of um, things that you can find for people with um, videos that you can look at right now. Media is one of those sources mm -hmm. that has a whole lot of things on um, leadership. And, you know, people from Chick-fil-A, I mean, all the, 
John Maxwell is one, obviously, but, you know, there's so many great leaders out there that are really super inspirational. So the internet's full of stuff. Um, and then the other thing is books. I mean, there is a lot of books out there that are great resources, um, that are easy reads, you know, something where you could read a chapter a night or something and, and just kind of make yourself think about different things. Um, another one is, um, uh, oh, now I'm going to gap on the name of the book right away, but how you start your mornings, you know, so it's about how you start your day makes a difference in how your day progresses. So if you start your day with intention, with your exercise or your meditation or your reading or maybe it's devotion or whatever it might be, but how you start your morning oftentimes will make a difference on how your, the rest of your day goes. I mean, so those are things you can start today. Yeah. Look at the internet, read books, be more intentional about how you start your morning instead of you know, getting up at five minutes before you need to be to work and you're running around the house and everything's crazy and oh my gosh, the kids need to do this. You know, just being more intentional about a lot of things in life can make a difference in how you start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I think um, I think that makes, for me, it makes such a big difference. If I, you know, if as long as, like when I think about, like I get up at five o'clock in the morning to run or work out and, um, and if I don't, if I miss it one day, you know, like yesterday was not a day that I was supposed to not work out. And if I miss it, it sort of, it sort of puts me back all day long. It sort of makes me feel like I haven't really come like initiated my day. Now, if I, that doesn't mean I can't not do it. It just means that that when I don't do it, it has to be part of the plan. You know what I mean? Like, like, okay, I'm going to take Wednesday off or I'm going to take Sunday off. Like it's going to be part of the plan because then I can accept it. But if I get up and I don't do that thing at the beginning of the day, um, then it's like, whoa, I, I, I haven't really started it or I missed that piece of the day and I never feel like I'm firing on all cylinders. Yeah. What's your thing? Um, I like lifting weights. Hmm. That, that's my thing. So, uh, the, and I get up in the morning. I aspire to be like you, five o'clock. <laughs> I'm not a morning person, so it's taken me a lot of time to like get that groove on, right? Um, but I'm slowly becoming more of a morning person. Um, but you're right. If it, you know, for me, it's exercise as well. And if I haven't done something, especially if I've gone a couple of days without doing something, I don't really feel good about myself, yeah. you know? And, and so today I got up and I lifted weights for an hour and you know, it, it's going to be a great day. Yep. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be a great day. Cause you've, cause and I think the thing for me that I can't remember who told me this or where I read it or what, but years ago, what, what I sort of started to embrace is, you know, and, and you know, maybe, maybe it's, physical activity is, um, not, not, I think the part about physical activity that's important is it gives me some time in my mind to just let my mind sort of go. And it's great when I do it with friends. Cause you know, stuff that comes out of my mouth, it lets me formulate ideas. And, um, but, but I think the thing is, is that no matter how my day goes, no matter what happens in clinic, no matter what happens with my family, um, I've made myself better in some way right? And it's a concrete way that I've made myself better. And, you know, actually, um, that even leads to the next topic of, uh, or, or kind of another idea. But, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that um, I've been able to do so much and it's inspired me so much is I was, um, I was 29 years old. So this was nine years ago. And my dad had just gotten done reading a book called Better Next Year. And it was by, it's written by a um, basically an athlete and his physician. And, and the idea is that you, you, can, you can always be stronger, better, you, know, you can always perform better 
And essentially, you know, the idea is that most people in, in our society will have this precipitous decline mentally, physically. So, you know, and, and then, and then unfortunately that, that, that even relates to the potential of how we, how we accept their ideas in society, how important they are in society. And, and so, um, so what, what should happen is that in society, we should think that in general, people that have way more life experiences have more knowledge and we should kind of glean information from them um, and, and be able to engage with them. But in a lot of cases we don't. And part of that comes back to their mental, you know, their mental capabilities, their physical capabilities. And so, um, this, the theory of that these guys were putting out was that, you know, if you take care of your body, you take care of your mind, instead of having this very slow precipitous decline from your thirties all the way to 85 and then gone, right. Um, where every year is a little worse than the year before you get up and your joints hurt a little bit more and then you're a little bit more foggy mentally. And then pretty soon it's like, you're not the same person you were is that if you're always breaking things down, you know, you're always breaking your body and, and trying to move your mind, uh, in a different direction, learn things and, you know, break the things you thought were, were true and try to figure out new ways to do things, then, um, then you can always be better. And so rather than having that precipitous decline, you know, obviously any of us could get a tumor in our brain or, you know, God, God forbid that, and, and that doesn't have anything to do with it. But, um, if you take the approach to life that I, you know, I could have this life till I'm 85 years old and be pretty much the same, like the same physical activity, the same mental sharpness. Right. And then, you know, something's going to get us, right. Something's going to get me and, and boom, then it's a quick decline as opposed to a very, very, very slow decline over 50 years or something like that. And so anyway, um, that's another thing that I thought was so better next year was a really good one that I thought that in terms of like motivating me to try to do, to try to do something every morning and then try to break things, you know, try to break things that I hold as convention, um, has really been inspiring to me. So anyway, when I was, when I was a resident in the VA, I primarily had a patient population of males between the ages of 50 and 85. Mm. Okay. And what I always found interesting was that you had the 80 year old that looked and acted like he was 60 mm -hmm. and you had the 60 year old that looked and acted like he was 80. And that was one of the most intriguing things for me. Like what, what about your life did you do or did you change or what is it about you that makes you so young or what about is it, what is it about you that makes you so old, you know, old before your time. And, and I still, even in patients nowadays too, that, that thought has always struck with me because I had a gentleman just the other day that's the same age as me and he's just in really bad shape. And I'm like, mm. Whoa, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, I, I think when I, when I looked at it, it was, it was smoking. Okay. You know, yeah. these were vets, right. From world war two. So, and some Vietnam vets, um, but it was smoking. That was a big one. Okay. But then it was physical exercise or doing something and having maintained that. And it was also the mentality of still being curious. Mm. The, the guys that were really interesting to visit with were still curious about life. And the, the guys that weren't as, you know, interesting to visit with or, or were aging far beyond, beyond their time 
to me just weren't as curious. Hmm. You know, it was something had happened that they just had kind of checked out. And, you know, it, and maybe it's the physical part of things. But anyway, that was kind of the things that I came to a conclusion about was that they were still trying to read. They were still trying to learn. They were still curious about life. They were still, you know, they weren't ready to be done. And, and um, you know, they were still moving their body. Yeah. And then there was the opposite of those. Yeah. Amen, Dory. That, uh, that's a, it's the best way to end it. Thanks for being on, and we will do this again. I, I always uh, enjoy, and, and actually, once you get done with that capstone, I'd love to hear about the research and what you found. That would be a lot of fun. Okay, that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah awesome. So I didn't. So people can reach out to you. Email address. Tell me, Dory, tell me. D-O-R-I. So it's dory.carlson at gmail.com. D-O-R-I.carlson at gmail.com. Awesome. Thanks, Dory. Have a great rest of your week, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you.